Hi, this is Wesley Yang. You are listening to the second episode in the syllabus series of the Year Zero podcast, wherein I spend a season working through a list of readings chosen by a designated expert uh, in a subject to do a deep dive. In this case, we'll be talking with Shep Melnick, professor of American politics at Boston College and co-chair of the Harvard Program on Constitutional Government. In the last episode, we discussed Melnick's book, The Transformation of Title IX, Regulating Gender Equality in Education. Check out that episode if you haven't already. And in this episode, we're going to discuss the essay, Adversarial Legalism and American Government, by Robert A. Kagan. There is a link to it in the show notes at substack.com, wesleyyang.substack.com. And uh, you should read it, but if you haven't yet, you'll still be able to follow along. Uh, This episode begins with us jumping right into discussing the subject. So if you could just, uh, I don't know, just begin by by giving whatever standard lecture you give on this essay and then, you know, refer to some of the things that are behind it. Um, Pretty fascinating essay and, uh, you know, many references to other essays that I do want to search out and read. So maybe you can also talk about, you know, the, uh, the, some of the things they reference. He starts with de Tocqueville and then he goes on to refer to, you know, more recent scholars i guess this is from the political science literature this is not like legal literature or right well it's a bit of an overlap actually let me Mm -hmm. i'll put it in context um the first thing i want to point out this article by robert kagan um it's not the robert kagan who's a neocon uh foreign policy expert i just want to point that out uh this is robert kagan who taught both law and political science at berkeley for many years he, uh, I should also point out, in fairness to Bob, that Bob is in no way a conservative. Um, mm-hmm. yes. um, he's just an excellent political scientist who started off on this in comparative politics. He was working on a study of the comparison of the port of Oakland um, mm. and the port of Rotterdam. Mm. And he found that in so many ways, these two liberal democracies handled aspects of the law so differently whether it be labor law or liability law or contract law or environmental law. So he really wrote this essay and then a book called Adversarial Legalism that's now in its uh, second edition, Harvard University Press, to explain this uh, key difference in how we govern. Mm-hmm. Um, and not is not just about uh, judicial activism, it's about a mode of governing. Mm-hmm. And I might, I think that the, the best way for me to present this was to start where we were um, talking about the civil rights state, mm-hmm. um, the, this elaborate set of rules and regulations that try to address various types of discrimination on the basis of race or gender or disability or many other things. Um, and many people refer to this as the part of the administrative state. But I would argue that in an important way, um, the administrative state in the United States is not particularly administrative. Um, and I think this is really kind of, it is a relatively uh, uh, decentralized, fragmented, uh, courts plays more much role as agencies. Um, and you have to understand the interplay and the effect of this really this fragmentation of authority. And that's really what um, Kagan um, is describing in adversarial legalism. 
And um, I guess where I usually would start in trying to explain this um, when I teach this course, uh, teach this material, is to really give a little bit of potted history. Hmm. Um, so you go back to the New Deal um, and say when the New Deal began to expand dramatically the responsibilities of the federal government, the assumption was that this would basically be done by centralized administrative agencies under the control of the president. Um, there was a, a substantial effort to, to reduce, in a major way, the role of the courts, because the New Deal and progressives hated the courts. We often forget mm -hmm. that. They hated the courts because they were uh, anti-union, anti-regulation, anti-federal power. This was the Lochner Court, or right, that... the Lochner Court, and mm. continuing through the 1930s of threatening the entire New Deal. Um, and Roosevelt basically remade the courts because he served four terms. It's the advantage mm. of serving four terms, mm. um, and uh, so they wanted to be definitely and had huge legislative majorities the whole time, right? Yes, huge yeah. legislative majorities. That and the key point is that, it, especially in the first days of the New Deal. Congress would basically pass anything that the Roosevelt administration wrote. So that was the model. You know, we're going to have a powerful president with a large bureaucracy under his control, um, weak courts, weak Congress. Um, and that's really what most people thought uh, the modern democratic state would be in the United States. And that's what it was in many European countries. Um, that's basically what it was in France and in England and in Germany after the war. That's not what happened to the United States. In the 1960s, there was a, a, a the courts came back, the Warren Court, Brown versus Board of Education. They were in the, the forefront of civil rights. Um, they gained from that, uh, for good reason, great moral legitimacy, especially on the left. So the left that had been highly hostile became, viewed the courts as really the engine of change. And in the 1970s, uh, Congress reasserted itself, largely because uh, Democrats controlled Congress and Republicans controlled the presidency. So Democrats wanted to insert their policies that way. And also because of the Southern senators and representatives who had basically blocked civil rights and blocked so many other policies were really, um, uh, their power was substantially reduced. So you had this another big surge of governmental authority, great society, and then uh, environmental protection and civil rights laws um, at a time when power was being refragmented, if I could use that term. And at the same time, and this is a point I probably should stress, and it's really uh, a great point that's made in the Hugh Hecklow article that we're uh, the next piece of reading, is that there was really substantial distrust of centralized administrative authority on the left. The new left dis, uh, distrusted it. I kind of figure for, I was momentarily a member of the, considered myself a member of the new left, and there were some good reasons for that. The military industrial complex running a disastrous war in Vietnam. Other agencies of the federal government running basically anti-consumer cartels. Um, for airlines and other things. So there was good reason for that. But generalized distrust on the left of administrative authority. And especially during throughout the 1970s, growing distrust among the public of administrative power and government power. So how do you square the circle? And the answer was 
it was adversarial legalism. You create a system in which you have multiple sources of government authority being exercised by the courts, by various administrative agencies, by Congress, by the president, entrepreneurial efforts in all of these areas, and subject administrative agencies to really extensive outside review. So a good example that is discussed in the Kagan article is the environmental impact statement. You didn't trust agencies to take account of the environmental impact of various developments. And there was very good reason for that, because they weren't. Um, and the idea is that you require an environmental impact statement with plenty of, of, of citizen participation, lots of hearings, often comments, and then extensive judicial review. And that's a good example of the way in which the power of agencies was reduced, the number, a power of private citizens or what turned out to be advocacy organizations was increased. And uh, this was done on the basis of congressional action, the National Environmental Policy Act of 1969. So that's kind of uh, the, the historical background. And just quickly say what uh, Kagan says adversarial legalism is. He says it's a combination of two features. One is what he calls total justice, this expanded understanding of what government should do. Basically, it should protect us from a wide variety of harms. The, the danger of poverty, of old age, of poor health, of environmental harm, of being hurt by, by things we buy, cars we drive, um, things we breathe, so you can have tort litigation. So a vast expansion of government responsibilities. At the same time, this fragmentation of government authority, uh, which is really uniquely, it's a uniquely American kind of the, 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 uh, the return of the constitutional separation of powers in an important way, the return of a really uh, uh, vibrant federalism, because often the states were in the leads on these things, in tort law or other things. So you had this highly fragmented system and um, vast, vast responsibilities. That's not always a good fit. Um, and what Kagan tries to show is the way in which uh, the, some of the consequences of that. And you, uh, I'll just say that we saw that with Title IX when we talked about Title IX, because some of the expansion of Title IX came through the courts. Some of it came through, um, through administrative agencies. A bit of it came through the, the, the Congress, when the Congress basically overturned some Supreme Court limitations. And uh, so the uh, one point to make here is that sometimes you can get a bidding up, what I call mm -hmm. institutional leapfrogging, through this process. And sometimes right. you get a series of veto points, especially in not-in-my-backyard forms of situations. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, you understand, it's a peculiarly American mode of governing. And I'll just make one other point because the Kagan makes very strongly, which is it combines a, a decentralized set of actors, but oddly a highly formal set of procedures for how you're going to conduct those controversies. So it's not just kind of free-floating negotiations and bargaining. You have all kinds of legal rules, administrative rules, um, and a lot of the fight is about what exactly the rules are. 
So the contestation is legalistic. It's often very expensive. It often is a high, uh, high transaction cost. Um, and sometimes it leads to, to protracted deadlock. And sometimes it leads to remarkably quick action. And I can, if you want, I can give you examples of both of those things. So this is really a case of uh, American exceptionalism, not mm-hmm. in the, the crude Palin-esque sense of the term, but in, exactly. it, 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 something about the, uh, America's values, cultural values, enshrined within the institutional design of its constitution, yes. and then uh, encountering, first in the New Deal, the need to modernize its state, <laughs> despite having this this 18th century, uh, you know, divided system that pits power against power and does it uh, deliberately um, in order to to deal with large corporations and uh, you know a nationalizing economy under conditions of uh, you know enormous stress. Mm-hmm. So under conditions of enormous stress, the Roosevelt administration was able to muster the energy and the cultural resolve and the political consensus behind a massive expansion of government at at the time when we were undergoing a depression, which is an extraordinary thing. And then this tremendous innovation in government that was intended to jerry-rig atop this constitutional structure, something resembling... (laughs) A, a European civil service and and national state able to able to take on the mm-hmm. rigors of managing uh, a, a globally interconnected economy, and in order to do that, they had to defeat a court that was connected uh, uh, through the political process, which they which they then did. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they were not able, although there was the wish among some to do anything uh, about the veto power that was held by uh, Southern Democrats, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And, and make an assault on civil rights. And so the assault on civil rights then comes in the 60s, as you're saying, from the new left, um, who, who and, and this is the term I'm gonna quote here, Americans have attempted to implement the socially transformative policies of an activist welfare state through a reactive, decentralized, non-hierarchical governmental system. And so you had a new left that sought socially transformative policies of an activist welfare state at the same time that those very figures also sought and brought about a kind of reversion to the reactive, decentralized, non-hierarchical governmental system. And that was in part because they had to deal with recalcitrant Dixiecrats, and and they wanted to, and they needed to use the courts and other entities to suppress their uh, continued influence. Mm-hmm. Is, is that right? right? That, that was an important part of it. Um, yeah. I mean, especially in civil rights, obviously, the Dixiecrats were the ones who were stopping any legislative action, so it really had to be the courts. And then once uh, the once legislation was passed, um, mm-hmm. one thing that happened was the Dixiecrats' power really substantially declined. Uh, But the interesting thing that happened there was that uh, Republicans who uh, supported the Civil Rights Act, especially in the Senate, um, when it came to who was going to run this new civil rights state, Mm -hmm. did not want to have a strong administrative agency. 
especially mm. for employment, because they did they hated the National Labor Relations Board, mm. um, and they said we're not going to create something like that. Mm. Um, so especially Dirksen in the Senate and uh, basically said we want to create a weak agency and and put most of this job in the hands of the courts, which mm. they did in the Civil Rights Act, right. and uh, that was an ironic mistake. <laughs> that was a mistake because it turned out especially after Nixon became president, that the courts were much more gung-ho about expanding the statute and really rewriting the statute to, Im to impose affirmative action than the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission ever was. So um, the, this was the, uh, a bad decision by the Republicans, um, mm -hmm. but it really did show the changing power of the courts. Um, and especially when you get divided government under Nixon, the Democrats really thought more and more, we don't want to give power just to agencies. We want mm -hmm. to give the courts a big role. And the mm -hmm. first way in which I actually became so aware of this was when I was writing my first book on environmental protection. And mm -hmm. it was quite clear um, that they didn't trust the Nixon administration to carry out the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. So they wrote these citizen suit provisions in there saying that any citizen can sue a polluter or they can sue the Environmental Protection Agency if they think it's not doing enough. In the mm -hmm. past, the courts been saying, you know, you can't do this. You have to. You can't go that far. But now their job was to push agencies to do even more. And the biggest example of that was uh, Massachusetts versus EPA, when uh, the court, Supreme Court told the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act something mm. that just didn't fit with the statute, but they figured it's an important thing to do. So it really shows the ability of the courts to say, you got you got to expand government, not just retract. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, how much of the, you know, uh, those who are following along with the podcast should read the essay, and I'll uh, include a link to it. Uh, but, but a lot of it concerns just a recitation of what happened in this specific yeah. dredging case. And, right. um, and it's sort of paradigmatic. Did he choose it because it was an unusually uh, egregious case or was it just more exemplary of the way things will often happen? I guess it was more the way those things tend to be than other things. But Yeah, I think he viewed it as exemplary because he had been studying Oakland and Rotterdam ports and he was uh, of course, you know, um, Oakland is a study of a lot of um, case studies like this because it's right next to Berkeley. So the Berkeley professors go mm. down there and study it. Um, <laughs> right. And w w I'll, let me say a word about that case study for the, right. uh, for the uh, listeners. And then I'll actually give you an example um, of it working in a quite a different way. Um, and I, I wrote about this actually in um, a piece that was a companion to the article that they're reading. So I think they fit together pretty well. Okay. So um, the Port of Oakland case involved the effort to try to dredge the Port of Oakland Harbor. It was not deep enough. Um, and if you've ever been to the Bay Area, you see those big Star Wars uh, container ship um, uh, things there. Um, and so the port and the shippers and Oakland really wanted it to be, to right. be dredged. Newly invented container ships allowed much more efficient and carrying of cargo in the 1980s. And right. so there was an effort to retrofit uh, the, the infrastructure um, there in order to accommodate this, this, this new economic uh, advance. And then 
wacky hijinks ensue. So go on. <laughs> right. uh-huh. Yeah, well, actually, I made a list. I thought mm. you asked something about this. So I made a list uh-huh. of the agencies mm. um, that were involved in the decision making for Oakland Harbor. Mm. Um, the Corps of Engineers, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Nat- National Marine Fishing Service, um, a federal district court judge, a state court judge in San Mateo County, um, the California Coastal Commission, the Contra Costa Water District, the Water Quality Control Board of San Francisco Bay, the County of San Mateo, Congress in passing appropriations, the California legislature, and eventually the White House, and I'll just add the Central Valley Regional Water Quality Control Board. Right. Um, there were multiple court suits, and by my count, there were five environmental impact statements. Mm-hmm. Um, there were suits by not just the standard environmental groups, but my favorite public interest group, the Half Moon Bay Fishermen's Association, <laughs> um, that held it up for quite some time. Now, um, which basically says that this dragged on for a very long time. Um, and um, finally, there was a compromise that was proposed for where, basically, where are you going to put all this uh, stuff you, you dredge up? Um, there were serious environmental issues because a lot of this stuff was pretty bad. Um, but in the, the, the Kagan's point is that in Rotterdam, they would have said, okay, let's do a study of this, and there'd be one agency to be pre- determine what we're going to do here. But here we had all of these agencies, very long formal procedures for each one, all of these environmental impact statements, and there was no one that was able to make a decision for a long time and make it stick. So that was really... Um, yes. So they, they added years to the project. They, they arrived at, uh, after all of these studies, probably an environmentally... Uh, the least optimal of all solutions, they put it on Alcatraz. Right. Uh, what they what they what they dredged up. Um, the uh, and and they multiplied the cost. I think by a factor of thirty or something something uh, to that, that effect. I think you're right about that. Right. So partly <laughs> it was there are a variety of costs. There were the transaction costs. There's just the legal fees. Um, there's the cost of delay. Um, Obviously, the costs go way up the longer you wait, and there were the cost of not doing anything in the meantime to allow this highly efficient method of transportation. As you pointed out, um, these container ports are really efficient, energy efficient, so in many ways they're good for the environment. We're seeing right now what happens when those containers can't get out of port. Yes, yes. And so we have these various agencies that have a remit that concerns one specific area of the health of the bay mm-hmm. uh, contending not just in court but in the administrative process where there is on, on equal footing with with everybody else who is responsible uh, mm-hmm. without looking at the overall environmental impact and they ended up with I believe something close to the most environmentally injurious uh, of all outcomes. Uh, and so this is this is a dysfunctional process, and then he goes on to show that since the period of reform, where Americans sought the uh, greater protection from their states, um, there's been a sixfold increase in in legal spending, and I think a doubling of its share 
of the national GDP. Uh, and he goes on to look to Europe. And there's something that is distinctively American about this chaos. Mm -hmm. And, and, and we can just say, oh, well, this is just, you know, this is just America. This is the way we do things. And, and it's a function of various concerns about rights and, and, and so on that are in the American grain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> on, uh, on the other hand, uh, we can also say that like more mature state governed societies uh, may understand some that that actually build civil services that, that that are competent and develop state capacity to have something that we can learn from. The, the, I think this piece was published maybe twenty years ago, or right. and yeah, and 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 look forward to a future in twenty years where some of these problems would have been uh, reformed out of existence. Uh, can can you say whether that, that has happened or there's just been a continuation? Because I know that. Yeah. You know, American construction, the, the American construction costs are, you know, continue to be, you know, continue to, to, to grow uncontrollably. And this process of adversarial legalism, I anticipate if one were to do an economic analysis, has a lot to do with that. Right. Having just bought, uh, built a new house, I can tell you about uh, construction costs. But uh, the uh, just to uh, build upon what you just said. Um, you know, if you take an issue like um, homelessness and housing, I mean, one very serious problem is it's very hard to build new housing in many cities yeah. um, in Berkeley or in San Francisco. So th these have very serious consequences um, for th things way outside environmental protection. I'll just make, let me make one kind of general point, and then I'll talk more about and address your question more directly. Because you raised, to what extent is this a question of American exceptionalism, something is, that's really baked into American politics? And there is one key element here that I think is hardwired, um, or at least since the New Deal. And there's a, a famous... Uh, political science article by Free and Cantrell, and they make the argument, which I think is quite right, that Americans are operationally liberal and ideologically conservative, by which he, they meant that they like, they want all of these programs. They want programs for environmental protection, for social security, for helping uh, poor children, for education. And the, the polling data on this is very clear. All of these things the Democrats push people want more of. But they also not only dislike, but they fear large government. Mm -hmm. And the polling data on that has really been quite dramatic recently, that how many the number of people who think that the federal government is a threat to individual liberty. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and Republicans understand that. Um, the point of the, of the article way back in the 60s, even more true today, is that both of those things are true. They're both in conflict. So in some ways, adversarial legalism is a way of, of squaring that circle. It's mm -hmm. a result of the conflicting demands that people put on government. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so that's why it's so hard uh, to do much about. There have been, it's, it's interesting to see where some of the pushback on this comes from. I would say probably the most important pushback on adversarial legalism has come from the Supreme Court. Mm. Um, they have tried to reduce opportunities for litigation. 
They've been quite clear about this in a wide variety of ways. I won't go into the details of just bore, bore you listeners. Um, but they have uh, uh, been relatively successful in a few areas. Mm-hmm. When Republicans took control of Congress in 1994, they took a few small steps in that direction uh, mm-hmm. to limit litigation, but not much. Um, mm-hmm. And the, uh, the point that probably should be made is that often Congress has a very strong incentive to, to expand adversarial legalism. Why? Because it allows them to take credit for doing something about an issue, um, mm. but they don't have to say exactly what it is, so they don't have to take blame for imposing costs. Mm. And that's particularly true in the area of disability, where you have unfunded mandates. So we'll let the courts do that. Mm. So uh, Congress, I think, has continued to be relatively supportive. Democrats um especially when they can't get legislation through Congress because they don't control Congress, they don't have enough votes, are quite uh, eager to do this through vague legislation. But um, Republicans rail against it, but they never do much against it. I don't think that Trump really made much effort to address this issue. And here, the point that I like to make about the Trump administration is that he pushed the edge of the envelope on so many legal issues, and he he uh, ignored so many really crucial norms that he invited mm. litigation. Yeah, and I'm glad that often he lost, mm. but that really uh, led the courts to think, well, you know, I, we're going to be more aggressive than ever, mm-hmm. uh, for better or for worse. Right, um, and so uh, I think um, partisan polarization and uh, switching back and forth control of Congress and the president has created further incentives for expanding adversarial legalism. Right. So, you know, an executive move, a very aggressive one, like uh, the Dreamers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, If a president can do that, (laughs) if the president can claim on my authority, I get to do that. Right. The next president ought to be able to claim on my authority, I can stop doing that. Exactly. Right, because it right. was the original act was based upon a claim of executive discretion, mm-hmm. and and then for a court then to say no, you're not allowed to do that uh, seems like kind of well, he this was an example of a, a thing where the generally I guess aberrant and uh, and and disorganized way he went about uh, doing things invited further judicial reach slash overreach. Absolutely. So first, when, when uh, presidents are not able to get very much of their legislation passed on crucial issues, then they are encouraged to do it unilaterally. And that inevitably is going to bring a court suit because mm-hmm. it's question, as much as I approved of the merits of Obama's moves on Dreamers, um, I am not sure I think that he had the legal authority to do that. But then, of course, as you said, the next president comes in on so many things with Title IX or immigration will say, well, he did that unilaterally. I can undo it unilaterally. In that case, the court said, um, number one, you did a really sloppy job Mm -hmm. and we know who you are and we know what motivates you and it's not pretty. Right. But then they basically said, you know, if you do it right, Mm -hmm. um, you go through the right procedure. Again, proceduralism is key here then we will probably let you get away with it. Uh Right. Uh, But the knowing that your motive is rooted in animus, 
right? Uh, right. And courts being courts taking it upon themselves to say, oh, we can we can invalidate uh, validate things that are driven by the wrong motives. Yep. So that's it's a it's a big. Uh, it's a big step, and am I right in perceiving it? You are absolutely right because um, courts have always said that they are highly reluctant to look at motives. Mm. Um, I mean, if you want to say look at the motives behind why people in Congress voted for a law, you're going to get 535 motives, some of which will be pretty and some will be ugly. Mm. Um, and same with presidents. But the, the, the pre Trump is such an aberration that he mm. really invited courts to do that. I hope that that effort will be an aberration itself um, right but one of the things i'll just point out about challenges to executive power which is mm. we have a very decentralized federal judiciary yeah and if you want to look at an example of it the the, the mask mandate decisions in florida you know that was just one district court judge yeah. um and there's a big <laughs> question about whether one district court judge should be able to hold up policies announced to the entire United States. So far, they've been able to. Um, yes. You pick your judge, right? So decentralization, fragmentation, mm -hmm. you choose the, the district in which you think you're going to get the most favorable decision. Yes. And then you hope that you will get uh, do it in the right circuit court, get them upheld, because the Supreme Court only decides about 100 cases a year, if that. Mm -hmm. So the Supreme, we, if you think the Supreme Court is going to be hearing most of these issues, Probably not. It takes a long time. Hi, this is Wesley Yang. You're listening to the Syllabus Series, part of the Year Zero podcast, wherein I do a deep dive into an academic subject, guided by an expert who will provide me with a reading list and work with me through it over the coming weeks and months. You're listening to an abridged version of a longer conversation. If you want to listen to the whole episode, which is for paid subscribers only, you have to visit my Substack, which is my home base for both my writing and podcasting endeavors, wesleyyang.substack.com, where you'll be able to subscribe to a package of writings by myself, outside contributors, and what promises to be a large archive of conversations with a range of academic experts on a range of different subjects. That's wesleyyang.substack.com.